This week, uh, we're going to continue on in our radical series. We're going to hear from some folks whose uh, lives God has changed. Brett and Jen, come on up here. This is Brett and Jen Johnson. Uh, They're great folks. We love Brett and Jen. Have a seat. Well, Brett and Jen have been uh, following God, and well, your lives have been a little bit different uh, lately. Um, what? Tell us about what your family was like a couple of years ago. Well, we were pretty much the average American family living the American dream. We had the big house, awesome neighborhood. We had two nice cars and a three-car garage. We uh, great family. Uh, we took great vacations. We were just living large. We thought we were doing the right thing, and and uh, we quickly realized that something wasn't right. Something wasn't good with this, so we needed to make some changes. What happened to change all that? What uh, what went on? Well, the first thing that we did was we decided we needed to ramp it up at church a little. We've been coming to church and just sitting in, in the background and then sneaking out afterwards, um, kind of doing half church. And uh, so we joined a small group, an amazing small group, and God placed us there. I mean, there's no other way around it. We're with people that he used to grow us. And um, we both started reading books, Francis Chan's Crazy Love, uh, Tim Keller's Counterfeit Gods, John Piper, um, of course, the Bible. Um, Tom Davis, if you're familiar, does a lot of books on fatherless and um, adoption situations. I started going to some Beth Moore studies here at church, and uh, the first one I went to was on Daniel, and Brett said it changed me. And so I kept going, and I kept changing. But one of my small group members uh, directed me to an online sermon by David Platt, who wrote the Radical book. And this was about a year, a little over a year and a half ago. And it's called The Gospel Demands Radical Abandonment. Something different than the book, but similar. And I have to tell you the few points that I got from this sermon because it woke me up. David Platt said, Jesus calls us to total surrender. You have to begin to care about what Jesus cares about. If our lives reflect excess, indulgence, and we ignore the poor, or even if we just kind of give to the poor but not much, there's a major heart problem. It's a condition of our heart. And, we were, and he also said, are you throwing scraps to the poor? Like giving them 20 bucks and, you know, Get that off my conscience. Jesus gave some commands, and these were not considerations, and I paid attention. He said, the fact that Jesus did not command all his followers to sell their possessions gives comfort only to those types of people to whom he issued that command. And I was thinking, wow, thank goodness he's not talking to me. But he was talking to me. And I shared it with Brett, and I said, God wants us to do something different. He had a different plan for our life. God changed your heart. What, what did you do with that? What, what actions did well, we resisted for a while, but then we realized that, that uh, this big house was, was a weight around our neck. And so we picked the absolute worst time to sell a house, put it on the market. A real estate agent told us we were crazy, and then nothing would happen. But within a month, it sold for the price we needed, and we were able to get out of that and pay off some debt. And... Uh, uh, Get away from that American dream. Yeah. So you did something then right after you sold your house. The day after. The day after, indeed. <laughs> we left for Peru on a mission trip. Uh, we waited right up to the very last day to commit to that trip. Uh, but once we went, we were uh, completely uh, changed by that trip. And we knew that we had to change our lives back here, even though we'd 
sold our home, we knew we could do more than just send a check somewhere. We knew we could adopt some children. Wow. Tell us about that when you got home from the trip. Well, when we got home from the trip, as many that have gone on mission trips know, it's really hard to assimilate back. I mean, you've seen something, you've smelled things, you just, you, you, they're hard, you can't explain unless you've been there. And so we uh, tried to get back into our routine, but these three kids kept coming into our mind and in our heart. And it's funny, the last day that we were at the orphanage, we took pictures of these three kids and didn't even know it. And we came home with this whole roll of like 20 pictures of these kids. And so we've been in the process of adopting three siblings, uh, two girls, 12 and thir or 13 and nine, and a little boy, three. And we're in the last stages of the adoption, hopefully to be matched with them in the next few months. That's exciting, that's exciting. So you're submitting to God, you're following his will. What's the cost been? Um, the cost for me, um, I, I'm the oldest of five children, grew up in a really tight-knit family, and Brett and I, held, we hosted every Christmas and Thanksgiving and birthday and just had so much fun in, in our big house. You know, we could do that. And um, as soon as we announced to everyone we were adopting and just, you know, nothing too radical at that point, just that we were going to help some kids, my, most of my siblings disowned me and have verbally abused me on Facebook and in, the, in emails and um, refused to spend time with us. And it's been heartbreaking for me. How about you, Brett? Well, my family is very close-knit, and we picked a Sunday dinner to share this news with them. And my brother and his wife are very supportive, which we expected that. Uh, my dad said absolutely nothing at all. And my mom, although she's, she's softened her heart since then, her first words were, well, maybe I'll be dead by the time they get here. paid a cost. So is it worth it? Oh, it's worth it. It's, uh, I don't know about you, but for me, um, I have really struggled with being good enough, uh, measuring up, being significant. Wherever that came from, I'm not sure, but all of this has taken that away from me because I know God has a plan and he's got me going right where he wants as long as I listen to him. I am so significant to him. And uh, one thing I wanted to share with you is this verse came up through our whole transformation over the last couple of years, and I, it's kind of our theme verse, is Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then, in his joy, went out and sold all he had and bought that field. And what I take away from this whole experience so far is that we were so complacent, so self-serving, and wanted to do it our way, and thank goodness God had a plan for us, and now we have definitely true freedom. Brad, is it worth it? Oh, yeah. I think uh, what I've found is that when you passionately pursue that American dream, like we're taught from an early age to do, uh, you end up with an empty soul. And I think once you are freed of that, you can really grow. That's neat. Well, thanks for sharing your story. Thank you.
If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to the New Testament book of Luke, chapter 14. And I'm going to be reading verses 25 to 33. And this is a radical passage of Scripture. These are challenging words from Jesus. Page 739 in your church Bibles, Luke 14, 25 to 33. Large crowds were traveling with Jesus, and turning to them, he said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost to see if he has enough money to complete it? For if he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everyone who sees it will ridicule him, saying, This fellow began to build and was not able to finish. Or suppose a king is about to go to war against another king. Will he not first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? If he's not able, he will send a delegation while the other is still a long way off and will ask for terms of peace. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. This is God's word. In an article I read last week, the very first line of the article said this, is your church an aircraft carrier or a cruise ship? Great question. Is your church an aircraft carrier Everything about aircraft carriers are about sending, about projecting from the leadership structure, from the very physical appearance of the vehicle. It's about sending and projecting power. Every task, every role, every person Aircraft carrier. Is your church an aircraft carrier? Or is your church more like a cruise ship? A vehicle that exists for the entertainment and the pleasure of the passengers. A vehicle that they wouldn't really even think about sending. Well, what's the point of having a cruise ship if it's, you know, I mean, if if we send, it's about everything that happens on board and the comfort and the pleasure, and the entertainment. Is your crew, is your church more like an aircraft carrier or a cruise ship? Well, these verses that we just read here, uh, they're not so that we can change the name of our church to Carnival Christian Church. Okay? We're talking like the USS Windsor Road. Uh, all right, or actually the HMS, His Majesty's Service, Windsor Road. That's really what it's about. 
And Jesus here answers the question, what does it take to be one of his disciples? What does it take? You go home today, and you uh, get out of your driveway. Before you go into the house, your next-door neighbor happens uh, to just meet you there. And you greet, and the neighbor knows that you uh, went to church. And, and, and just out of the blue, point blank, your neighbor says, by the way, what's that pastor of yours teach about being a Christian? Now, what are you going to say? What's your response? Uh, you, only, you know you only have about 30 seconds, okay? What's going to come out of your mouth? Well, you know, we, you know, we kind of go to church, and then we kind of sit and sing, and that's, you know, then we give and serve a little, and, you know, do, uh, you know, do some time in the nursery, and then we got this thing on the 24th and the 25th. The pastor doesn't want to preach that week, so he's going to give us all a rake, you know, and... What's it take to be a follower of Jesus Christ? Well, Jesus himself answers that question in these verses. And he gives four essentials. And he says in no uncertain terms, if you want to be my disciple, here's what has to happen. First, you have to hate your mom. Secondly, you've got to carry your cross. Thirdly, you've got to do the math. And fourthly, you have to renounce it all. That's all it takes. That's all. That's all. First, you've got to hate your mom. Yeah, isn't that what he says in verse 26? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his, well, okay, as someone pointed out to me in the foyer, your father or your mother, his wife and children, his brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And yes, that has to be explained. Hate, but people read that cold. And, hate, well, how absurd. What, what is your neighbor says? What, what, kind of, what kind of a cult do you go to anyway? What is that all about? And, and, and how absurd. On the other hand, others would say, how unnecessary. I already hate my parents. Tell me something I don't know. You know, it's just, challenge me. Really? <laughs> In the Bible, the word hate has two meanings. It does. And the first meaning is the kind of hate that, you know, we, it, it's Randy kind of hate, you know, to psychologically seethe against someone. I don't need to explain how to do that. We all kind of can do that pretty well, can't we? But there's another kind of hate that is clear in the Bible. And it's a, uh, it's, and it's the same word, but the context matters. And in this context, the word hate means not to psychologically see, but the word hate means to choose between. To choose between. And this is not just a New Testament thing. I'm thinking of Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, where the Lord says, I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. What does that mean? It means that God chose Jacob and through the line of Jacob came Israel and his people. It means to hate in this context means to select and to commit to what's most important. Hate here has to do with the proper aligning of my allegiances, the proper ordering of my loyalties, which in Jesus' day was still very, very radical, and here's why. In the first century, his audience, 
you know, they lived in a land that was occupied by the Romans. So their homeland was occupied territory by non-Hebrews, by pagans, by Gentiles. And then secondly, on a racial level, the Jews were a minority. So family and identity and culture and, and your heritage and your racial connections, and that was significant. Your tribe mattered. And to this, Jesus is demanding to matter more. Hard words, radical words in a world where your name and your identity and your vocation, uh, well, that, was your safe, that was your social safety net. They were going to be the ones who were supposed to watch your back. And then Jesus is saying, I want you to reorder and turn your back on them in terms of your allegiance, and I must come first. And so we shouldn't be surprised when we hear a faith story about a family who has ordered their allegiances and not every one of their nuclear family really appreciates that. Shouldn't be surprised. And in some parts of the world today, a decision to follow Christ means your belongings get put on the curb when you get dried off from the baptistry because your family has disowned you and in fact they're going to have a funeral for you but I'm not dead ah but to them you are you're gone and in some parts of the world you've got the sentence of death over you I'm thinking of and have you heard about this Christian brother uh, Iranian Yusef Nadarkhani an Iranian Christian pastor he's been charged with apostasy from Islam and evangelism to Muslims, and that's a capital crime in Iran today. And on June the 12th the Supreme, of this summer, the Supreme Court of Iran upheld his death sentence. Uh, and they provided that his sentence could be commuted if he recanted. And he has not recanted. That's the ordering of one's loyalties. He just loves Jesus more. He just loves Jesus more than his wife, Fatima. He just loves Jesus more than his own life. That's what we're talking about here. Now, now, how how does that happen? How do you, you know, how do you how do you exhibit that kind of hatred? How do you hate the way Jesus wants you to hate? And the answer is love. It's one of those you've got to lose your life to gain your life kind of thing. If you want to lead, you've got to serve. And if, and if you want to hate the way Jesus wants you to hate, you've got to love. You do. Because, you see, Jesus is, Jesus is not just um, a demanding, dutiful drudgery, emotionless, dutiful drudgery. He, 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 he wants this to be an emotional connection as well. I want you to love me so much that comparatively, comparatively, it feels like hate to all else. There's an emotional connection here. God wants more than just drudging duty. He wants my heart and, and, and my love. He, becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ uh, is more than just willpower, more than just something volitional. Uh, it, it, it's involved, it, it involves knowing and 
feeling God's love and expressing God's love. And, and love for God is how we change. Love for God is how we mature. Love for God is why we serve. It's what fuels service. Love for God is how we forgive. Love for God is how we get over grudges. Love is the key to hate. <laughs> and when our love is rightly ordered, that love leads us to look more and more like Christ. So, so you know, Randy, how do we hate the way Jesus wants us to hate? We got to love. Okay, well, how do we love the way Jesus wants us to love? Well, the Bible says that we love because God first loved us. And you can't give what you don't have. And so the way to, the, the way to love God more is to receive and feel more and more of God's love for you. You know, the stars are out all the time. But it's when the sunshine floods this earth, my goodness, that's all we see is just the sun. And when God's love floods your heart, it just eclipses everything else. I'm thinking of a quote that a pastor in the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon, gave. Listen to this. Can you imagine it that God, who is greater than immensity, whose life is longer than time, that God, the all-boundless one, should love you, that he should think of you, pity you, consider you, well, oh yeah, he might do that. But no, that he should do more than that. Love you. Love you. That he should, that his heart should go out to you. That he should choose you. That your name would be engraved on the palm of his hand. That he should not think heaven complete without you. And that you should be his bride and Christ the bridegroom. And that there should be eternal love between him and you. Oh, and then Spurgeon says, as you think of it, as you, as you consume it and meditate and are nurtured by it, lift up your hands with adoring wonder and say, your love to me was wonderful. You see, I had a wedding here yesterday and um, we walked out and, and uh, the groom was with me and there was a beautiful bride just walking down the aisle and I happened to catch a glimpse at the groom's face as his beautiful bride came and he was just mesmerized it's like i mean the sun of his smile just blinded everybody see he couldn't wait for that day and i said to him that look on your face as you saw your beautiful bride coming down the aisle pales in comparison to the anticipation of the bridegroom Jesus Christ for his church in the new heavens and the new earth. Oh my, you can't wait to get to heaven, neither can Jesus. And that's how you love. When you're flooded with that kind of love, then you can love the way Jesus wants you to love. And when you love the way Jesus wants you to love, that's what it looks like to hate. That's how to hate your mom. But then Jesus, after encouraging us in verse 26, challenges us in verse 27. He says, and anyone who does not carry his cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. And there's that phrase, carry your cross. What is that? What's behind that? Well, that's about 
crucifixion. And, and we need to understand what's going on in Jesus' mind and in that culture. Uh, you know, history tells us that crucifixion was for acts of sedition and treason by the Roman Empire. Crucifixion was for hardened criminals. Crucifixion was for slave revolts. Think Spartacus. Crucifixion was for the so-called freedom fighters against Caesar and the Roman Empire. And what would happen, of course, is after a convicted criminal of treason and sedition and insurrection was finally sentenced, part of the penalty had to do with that cross being, being laid across the back of that insurgent. And having been condemned to death, that insurrectionist uh, would be paraded throughout the city. A sign would be put around uh, the rebel's neck describing the crime that had been committed. And then they would march that criminal throughout the streets as a public deterrent. And then they would be taken to the place of execution. But here's the significance of the carrying of the cross. You see, this insurgent had tried to rebel against uh, the empire. And the message of carrying the cross was simply this. The very last act that insurrectionist would take before leaving this life was to submit against the very empire that that insurrectionist had tried to rebel against, you see. And that's the message of carrying the cross. To carry the cross means to submit to an authority against which one had previously rebelled. It means to bow the knee. I used, I, I, I used to, to, to rebel against this authority. Now I bow the knee and I obey him and do his will whatever that is and wherever that leads, wherever that leads. That's what it means to carry the cross, to submit to Christ no matter what. Carrying the cross doesn't mean hearing what God wants me to do and then me saying, well, I'll think it over. Because he's not a consultant. He's the emperor. Someone wrote, salvation costs you nothing. Discipleship costs you everything. Salvation occurs in a moment. Discipleship takes a lifetime. Salvation is what God does for you. Discipleship is what you do with God. Discipleship does not occur apart from human effort or because of human effort. Discipleship is Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where Paul says, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Now, he didn't say work for your salvation. He said work out your salvation, which means to complete, finish it, endure. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Can you tell? Jesus is not on a membership drive here. Large crowds were following him, and this was not the first time he would do this. The, the large crowds would be following him, and then, and then you know, Jesus turned to them. I can imagine the 12 uh, are just going, oh no, here he goes again. And he's going to thin the herd. He's going to just thin the herd. He's going to say, this is what it takes if you want to be my disciple. You've got to hate your mom. You've got to carry your cross. And, and, and this is why then he encourages us thirdly, you've got to do the math. You've got to do the math. And so he tells two parables. Did you hear of these two parables? The parable of the tower builder. This is a cost estimate parable. 
Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Will he not first sit down and estimate the cost? Sit down. You've got to sit down and estimate the cost. You can't be a disciple on the fly. You've got to sit down and count the cost. You've got to do the math. Who, you know, who would do that? Who would just, who would go out to a field and start building a building with no construction plan and no plan to finance? Who would do that? And the answer is no one would. No one would do that. And those who do and don't finish get mocked. And the unfinished project is a, is a monument to the builder's folly. Verse 29 and 30. If he lays the foundation and is not able to finish it, everybody who sees it will ridicule it. You start, you quit, they mock. That's how it works. And if that's true in the, in the construction world, how much more is it in the spiritual world? And so the point is that you've got to do the math. You've got to calculate the cost of following Christ. Years ago in Christian history, uh, there was a missions organization uh, that when they shipped missionaries out and around the world, they would pack all of their belongings in a coffin. And it was a very clear message. I'm following Jesus until the day I die. I'm going to talk about Jesus until the day I die. And they would write a farewell letter to their loved one. They would give it to their pastor. And the pastor would read it on the death of the missionary. And I think it used to be that churches would appreciate this counting of the cost more, I do, than maybe we do today. I fear that, um, I fear that some churches are afflicted with, uh, what, I guess what I would call the poverty of affluence, where we become so accustomed to our affluence, we, we just, we, we live in such a consumer-driven culture, and if we don't like this church you can go someplace else and if you don't like what you hear from the pulpit you can go somewhere else to get what you want and not what you need and you know I don't know your stories here okay so but let me just challenge you with some of these questions listen you know how many different churches have you been to in the last 10 years huh and why how many paths of least resistance have you taken and why? And how many times have you already quit and why? And how many people are you blaming? You know, Sarah and I have had the, just the privilege, I am, a, I am privileged to be able to be here for 22 years and to see what God has been doing and is still doing and to be in a church community where you know, we've been able to baptize our sons and I've given the privilege of officiating at my older son's wedding here and, and to have this kind of a church home. I'm so grateful for that. And, and to know that the best is yet to come. I truly believe that. Our best years are yet to come. But I'll tell you, one of the things that is not fun at all is to um, think about those who've just quit. They've just quit. They quit. they quit reading their Bible, they quit praying, they quit serving, they quit tithing, they quit community, they eventually quit Christ, some of them quit their marriage, some of them quit their kids. They just quit. And then you know what? They're not happy. They're not happy at all. And they, have, they haven't left a legacy either. That the only legacy they've left is the legacy of an unfinished building. 
And to this, Jesus says, you need to do the math. You need to do some math. Every day is math day. Sit down, take out your pencil, and count the cost. Count the cost of following Christ. Have you done that? Will you do that? But lest we refrain from following Christ for fear of our inability to bear the the cost, (laughs) Jesus tells parable number two. See, the par- parable number one is the parable of the tower builder. Parable number two is the parable of the warring king. Do you see that there in verses 31 and 32? It's about a king who got so mad at another king, he said, I've had enough, we're going to war. So he gathers all of his generals around the table, and he says, okay, generals, what's the plan? And the generals say, the plan, the plan is to surrender. That's the plan. Why? <laughs> Why? Well, your highness, They have 20,000, we have 10,000. That means we're going to lose. Now, while they're still a long way off, there's still time to send a peace delegation. You hear what Jesus is saying? In the first parable, Christ urges us to reckon whether we can afford to follow him. In the second parable... Jesus urges us to reckon whether we can afford not to follow him. Because the only thing more expensive than following Christ is not following Christ. So every day we do the math. Every day we count the cost. Hate your mom. Carry your cross. Do the math. And then, you know, as if to clarify anything that may be murky in these verses, Jesus just closes in verse 33. You've got to renounce it all. In the same way, any of you who does not give up everything he has cannot be my disciple. And I'm thinking about the two 28-year-olds, husband and wife, in love, on the rim of the Grand Canyon on New Year's Eve. Hotels were full. They needed a place to stay. And the husband had a brainstorm. Husband said, oh, I bet the ranger at the bottom of the canyon is lonely, especially tonight. So let's call him and see how he would feel about having some guests. And so they did. And the ranger, whose wife was down there, said, well, come on down. So they trudged down to the canyon floor, New Year's Eve. They were invited into their large uh, uh, cabin. They were served a wonderful dinner. And then they got a little tour of the place. And the ranger showed them what he called the sports room. The sports room. And it was incredible. It was like a store. High-class hiking boots, expensive backpacks, fancy hats, even fancier walking sticks. And and, and the 28-year-old guy said, what is with all of this stuff? And this is what the ranger said. Well, people can walk in easily enough with all this stuff. They just can't walk out. Jesus is the greatest, grandest, deepest, widest, highest canyon that's ever existed. And you come to him with everything, and you leave everything with him. And so often we want to minimize these verses by saying, well, you don't really need to renounce it all. You just got to be willing to renounce it all. That's not what this says. This says you have to renounce it all, all. 
You have to renounce uh, by the way you live your life, the way I treat my stuff. You've got to renounce the way I interact with my relationships, my grip on my possessions. It belongs. I need to renounce my righteousness. I need to renounce everything. It's his. It's Christ's. And of course, this point raises questions like, am I surrendering to the Lord every part of my life, every part of my possessions, every part of my future, every part of my retirement, every part of my relationships? No, no, no. Okay, so Randy, but what does that look like in real life? Well, you know, corporately, I think it looks like what we see in Acts chapter 4, verses 31 to 35. It's on the bottom of your outline on page 2. After the believers prayed, the place where they were meeting was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and spoke the word of God boldly. And then it says this, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own, but they shared everything they had. See, you've got to see that in its paragraph because it wasn't just a matter of just, just throwing money at something. It was a matter of being a praying community, a spirit-filled community, a speaking the word of God boldly community. And then out of that overflow of God's flooding oceanic love, there was just this release, this renouncing. And so for some of us, renouncing everything by following Christ will lead us to sell our home and downsize or move or go plant a church or go to the Dominican Republic or Nepal or pursue international adoption or domestic adoption or marry or remain single or go back to your family or go back to your family and tell them what Jesus has done for you. Isn't that what happened in Mark chapter 5? As Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who'd been demon-possessed begged to go with him, and Jesus did not let him. Isn't that interesting? Send him back to his family. Go home to your family and tell him how much the Lord has done for you. So, see, sometimes it means staying where you are. Sometimes it means not going into vocational ministry, but being the very best professor, plumber, contractor, teacher, physician, athlete, mechanic, accountant, soldier, butcher, baker, and candlestick maker that you can possibly be. Farmer, thank you. How could I forget that? <laughs> I repent, Roger. <laughs> oh, that's good. I started with an article. I'll end with an article. I love this. Michael Patton. Title of his article is, title of his article is, I want to die for God, but he won't let me. You know, you know, you get on fire, you, you read radical, you read crazy love, and you're ready to die. You're ready to die for Christ and the gospel and whatever mission God puts you on and whatever, however, whatever. I'm just ready to sacrifice it all. And the problem is, there's no altar. Right? There's no altar. At least not the one you'd like or think about. If it exists, not in the glory of your perceptions. So you, you know, you... So you just, well, okay, well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to become a missionary. So you talk to your spouse and your family about quitting your job and becoming a full-time missionary in Africa. Why Africa? Just cause. 
Or you decide to, you know, I'm going to start a church. I'm sick of churches that wouldn't know the gospel if they, you know, hit them in the kneecap. I mean, so, you know, you don't know what to do. So you get on Microsoft Word and you make yourself a flyer and get a neat logo and announce a new Bible study to be held at a friend's coffee shop. And you're thinking 30 or 40 are going to show up. And there's two. Or maybe you decide to go to seminary and they won't accept you. Or you start with the missions endeavor, but you don't get the funds. Or, or you know, wh- what do you do when you really try to die for Christ, but he won't let you? You're, you're on the altar, but all you're getting is sunburned. And I love what Michael Patton says. He says, you know, this, look, look. The Christian life is a, is a life of starting over every morning. God has not put us on a 100-meter dash but on a long-distance run. You think the Johnsons started coming here last Sunday? He doesn't carve out flashes in the pan. He's creating endurance. I think that's part of what it means to be a living sacrifice. So, So if God calls you to be a living sacrifice, don't be surprised if you live. And, and often, being a living sacrifice means quietly trusting in the Lord. As in what Paul said to the Thessalonian believers in 1 Thessalonians 4.11. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business and work with your hands. Oh, now that's a real captivating vision, isn't it? But that's what it says. You know, I, I mean... I want to make an impact. I want to stir things up. I want to drop a bomb on the world, leaving behind the sign of the Trinity. Yeah, well, your bomb is getting you off the altar. God wants you on. And Patton says, I've just watched a very dear friend who had so much zeal for the Lord and so much passion to follow him and so much desire to die that he now sits divorced, estranged from his wife and family, with his head in his hands, wondering why the Lord gave him a spiritual cement job. In his zeal, he outran the Lord and left his wife because he couldn't wait for her to catch up. Charles Swindoll once said that the problem with living sacrifices is that they keep wanting to crawl off the altar, get back on the altar. Which leads me to this closing question. What's your altar? That's the point of these green slips of paper here. What's your altar? What's your altar? What, what is the altar that God has for you? What is that? I want you to scribble what that is. And then I want you to fold that and you say, God, this is the altar that you've put me on. And you come up and you put that altar, whatever that is there in that box, and you see communion symbolizes what Christ's altar was and that is he came not to be served but to serve and to give his life for us his bride whom he loves so much he can't wait for the new heavens and the new earth Heavenly Father thank you that you sent your son and that he He loved you so much that he left. He ordered his 
priorities as you wanted that. And then he did carry the cross, even to death, because he did the math and he renounced it all. And we just want to be like Jesus. So thank you for, thank you for giving us the strength to do what you want us to do. And we promise, whatever that altar is you put us on, Lord, we just want to live there and by your grace die there.